Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. Every three years, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, made up of the world's richest countries, publishes an international student assessment. They test 15-year-olds for comprehension in reading, math, and science. One goal is to understand which countries have the most successful education programs and why. In 2015, the United States ranked 25th overall out of 72 countries. Why does one of the world's wealthiest countries perform so poorly by international standards? Why is our education system so relatively ineffective, and what might be done to improve achievement? Professor Pedro Nogueira has thought about these questions on many levels. He teaches at the Graduate School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA, where he researches education, social justice, and public policy. He spoke on equity and deeper learning as part of the University of Washington's graduate school lecture series, Equity and Difference, Privilege. His talk took place at UW's Kane Hall on January 10th. My name is Steve Sawada, and I am in my final year of my master's degree in public administration at the Evans School of Public Policy. Uh, thanks. Yeah. I'm also a graduate staff assistant with GOMAP, the Graduate Opportunity and Minority Achievement Program. Yeah, since, since the presidential election, I've uh, had many discussions in both venues around the future of public policy, specifically um, those uh, policies meant to address society's most enduring challenges. Education policy and the challenges faced by youth, specifically youth of color from America's most marginalized and underinvested communities, is something we've discussed often, and I'm thankful to be standing with you tonight, reflecting on these challenges together as a community. The UW Graduate School cares deeply about cultivating thoughtful scholars and practitioners eager to address our world's persistent challenges, and its 12-part equity and difference lecture series presents meaningful talks from thought leaders on our campus and around the world who are working to open our eyes to the role and power of privilege and how privilege can be shared. Please join us on February 15th with UW faculty Joy Williamson-Lott, who will, yes, it'll be a terrific lecture. She will be discussing um, how history can guide the future of education. As the division of the graduate school, GOMAP takes the lead on recruiting and retaining a diverse graduate student body and is nationally recognized for our unique and innovative efforts in mentoring, networking, and professional development. By creating experiences rich in cultural diversity, GOMAP fosters an inclusive graduate community in which all students can learn and develop skills to participate in academic, civic, and professional endeavors. For four decades, we have worked to make the UW campus stronger, safer, and more inclusive. Uh, I want to take a moment to introduce our Associate Dean of the Graduate School, Dr. Gino Eisenberg. And along with some of our other GOMAP staff, my fellow GSA, Lindsay Wilson, who is a PhD in the College of Education. and our staff program officers, Vanessa Alvarez and Carolyn Jackson. Uh, administered by GOMAP, the Mangles, well, we're actually here tonight because of a generous gift to the University of Washington from Marianne and John D. Mangles. 
The Mangles Endowed Lecture Series was established in 1990 to honor the retirement of Don G. Mang John D. Mangles, Chair and CEO at Security Pacific Bank of Washington, which is now Bank of America. Administered by GOMAP, the Mangles Lectureship, in cooperation with academic departments and programs, bring to the UW minority scholars and individuals who work whose work focuses on issues of diversity from a variety of fields for the benefit of minority students, the campus community, and the general public. Today's speaker, tonight's speaker, Pedro Nogueira, is in tremendous demand for his work on making school successful for every student. He is a professor of education at the Graduate School of Education and Information at UCLA. And prior to joining the faculty at UCLA, he served as a tenured professor and holder of endowed chairs at New York University, Harvard University, and the University of California, Berkeley. He is the author of 11 books and over 200 articles and monographs. He serves on the board of numerous national and local organizations, such as the Economic Policy Institute, the Young Women's Leadership Institute, the After School Corporation, and The Nation Magazine, and appears as a regular commentator on educational issues for CNN, MSNBC, National Public Radio, and other news outlets. From 2009 to 2012, he served as a trustee for the State University of New York, as an appointee of the governor. In 2013, he was appointed to the Kappa Delta Pi Honor Society, and in 2014, he was appointed to the National Academy of Education. Dr. Noguera has numerous awards, including the Center for Advanced Study of the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University for Outstanding Achievement in Advancing the Understanding of the Behavioral and Social Sciences as they are applied to pressing social issues. The National, Associate of, the National Associate of Secondary Principals for Distinguished Service to the Field of Education and the McSilver Institute at NYU for his research and advocacy efforts aimed at fighting poverty. Please welcome Dr. Pedro Nogueira. Pleasure to be here. I want to uh, first of all thank uh, Dean Mia Tuan for the invitation, uh, a friend and colleague for inviting me back uh, so soon. I was just here a few months ago. Uh, thank the university itself for organizing this visit, and all of you for coming out on a cold night in Seattle. Uh, when they told me that a lot of people had registered, I said, well, people registered, but they don't come. You came, so, <laughs> so thank you. Uh, Seattle uh, is a city I have a close attachment to, not only because uh, my brother lives nearby in Tacoma, uh, and the Kurosais, who are an extended part of the family uh, are based here, but because it's such a beautiful place. I often tell people uh, it's the most beautiful city in the country on a clear day. <laughs> Too bad you don't get that many clear days, right? Uh, but it's good to be back, um, and it's good to feel the energy um, that I've already felt today uh, from educators and others who are here who are concerned about the future of education. Uh, not just in Washington, but in the country. And I think we have good reason to be concerned. Uh, current uh, president-elect is about to appoint someone who has no background at all in education, except for having been a philanthropist uh, who did a lot to dismantle public education in the state of Michigan. And so there's a track record there, but it's not a pretty one, not for uh, public schools. And so now more than ever, I think it's going to be important to figure out how do we defend public education? Because if we really do believe that public education is essential to a democracy, like Thomas Jefferson once said, in fact, Jefferson thought that without a public education system, you couldn't even trust people to vote. 
because edu uneducated people might make bad decisions as we've <laughs> seen. Sorry about that. But, um, <clears throat> but I, I do think that public education is so essential to the future of this country because it is by far the most accessible institution, the only institution that serves all kids, including the undocumented. It's also so crucial to our future. We know that we've been trying to reform schools in this country for many years now, and Seattle's been at the center of that, in part because you're home to the Gates Foundation. I was here about 15 years ago for a meeting with the foundation when they were in the middle of uh, their small school initiative, spending close to $2 billion across the country on making schools smaller. Told them then, <laughs> it takes more than being small to be good. There were a lot of small schools already that were not very good. And that if you didn't change the culture of the schools, if you didn't change the teaching, not much would change. As we know, the Gates Foundation isn't doing that anymore. In fact, if you mention small schools, they'll probably want to slap you. <laughs> but we keep seizing on this idea that there's a gimmick out there. If we just do this, if we just do more technology, get iPads in, that's what they tried in LA, right? Spent a billion dollars of money they didn't have on iPads. Didn't even think to make sure that the kids couldn't get on Facebook in school. Right? Or maybe we should uh, instead just uh, find some other curricula change, like the Common Core, which I'll speak about in a moment. And over and over again, we realize, you know what? There is no gimmick. There is no silver bullet that if we just do that, we'll make schools change. So I want to take us back to something that we should have known a long time ago, which is the, important of, the importance of getting kids excited about learning. Wow, what a radical idea <laughs> that we would use that as a high leverage change strategy. We've been so fixated on achievement and so unfocused about how to get kids engaged in learning. I try to remind people that achievement is the outcome measure. Engagement, intellectual engagement, is the way we get them there. If you wanted to lose weight, would you focus on the scale and weigh yourself as often as possible? or would you focus on diet and exercise? In education, we've been focused on the scale. And not surprisingly, we haven't nearly begun to figure out how to create schools that not only make it possible for kids to come away better prepared for life as adults, but begin to address these huge gaps these huge disparities that correspond to race and class that are contributing to the inequities in our society. They don't cause them, but they certainly play a role. And that's why tonight I want to speak to you about deeper learning as a high leverage strategy. And I want to start by saying that I've seen it work. My colleague Linda Darling-Hammond and I have written a paper 
called Equity and Deeper Learning, because we say, look, there are places where it's happening. We should learn from what's working. Stop pretending that this is just uh, something that got made up. We learn in other fields from success. Learn in health, certainly learn in sports, right? See a winning team, then they want to recruit the coaches from that winning team to replicate it. In education, we don't do that. Sometimes we don't even do it in the same school. And so I want to really spend some time examining what it looks like to make deeper learning available. And I'll start with a recent experience. I was invited to visit a high school in Northern California, community outside of Sacramento, a community called Del Paso Heights, DPH. Doesn't look like a city when you're there. It feels like a rural area almost. Dirt roads, a lot of vacant lots. The kids told me when I visited Grand High School that DPH to them stands for the deeper part of hell. I sat down with a group of administrators there. And I was so impressed by their commitment because every one of them had graduated from that high school themselves. And they were committed to making a difference. And they were committed to that community. They wanted to bring a sense of pride to the school, and they were struggling. They were struggling because it had all the common features we associate with failure. High dropout rates, low test scores. And then they described the community. Community with high poverty, plagued by violence. The principal, who was really at wit's end, told me, he said, I just don't know what more to do. We're working hard, but it's not working. And then he took me on a tour of the school. And on the tour, we stopped in on a class that was being led by someone he said was not a member of the staff. He described her as a poet mentor from the community. And she was leading a group of students in a writing workshop. And the workshop started with a prompt. The prompt was, I'm not who you think I am. And she proceeded to model for the students. She said, you think you see a professional woman, a nice professional outfit, but I'm actually one paycheck removed from losing my home. And I have a brother in prison. And my mother's sick. I'm stressed out, but I'm here with you today. There's more to me than what you see. She said, I bet that's true of many of you. She said, write about it. And the kids went to work writing. And I watched his kids produce two, three pages of notes. And after about 20 minutes, she said, who's ready to share? And all the hands shot up. So she called on a student, young lady. And the girl stood up and read. And the first line was, I am not cancer. She had just been diagnosed two weeks ago. And she said she wasn't going to allow the disease to define who she was. And then a tall boy raised his hand. He said, I want to share. And she called on him. And he proceeded to say, and he's laughing as he did. He started giggling. I thought he's not taking it seriously. Except the story he shared was so deeply troubling. I know he did. Because he described being thrown out of his home by his mother and having the clothes ripped off his back 
as he and his brother marched in the street to find their grandmother's house. He said, I am more than just a homeless kid. And each time the students shared their stories, other students came and embraced them. And a sense of community was created in that classroom. In 45 minutes, I was hugging, moved to tears. And as they were prepared to leave, the poet mentor said, this is your first draft. We don't do our best work on the first draft. Come back tomorrow ready to revise because you're going to present this work, you're going to speak about it and share it with others. And I want it to be your best work. And as they were leaving, I turned to the principal. I said, here's the answer to the problem in the schools. He said, what do you mean? I said, look at these kids. Look how engaged they are. I said, how often do they write like that in their classrooms? He said, well, you got a point. They don't. I said, why don't you have more teachers watching what this poet mentor is doing here? I share that example because we have made this problem much greater than it need be. Educating kids shouldn't be that hard because learning comes natural to children. What is the fundamental question of every three-year-old you ever met? Why? They want to know why, don't they? I've got a four-and-a-half-year-old, and that's all I get all the time. Why? It's a good thing that YouTube exists so we can learn together. Most recently, she's been interested in disease and wants to know about Zika. Why Zika? I don't know. But it's a natural curiosity. And we know that if we feed that curiosity, our kids become motivated to learn, because it works. And so deeper learning is really about that about developing those higher order thinking skills that we know are so essential to problem solving, to research, to grappling with complex ideas. And we know that all kinds of people are capable of it. Kids with learning disabilities, kids who don't speak English as their first language, all kinds. And we know that when that ability to think is cultivated and encouraged, it not only results in much deeper engagement, it also results in people becoming independent, self-motivated learners. And so I want to encourage you to ask yourself, what are we doing to develop these kind of skills in kids right now? In many of the schools I go to, and I visit lots of schools all around the country, the number one complaint I get from kids about school is that it is boring. And why do they say it's boring? Because it is. <laughs> because it is. Because too much of school is sitting and listening, passive learning, doing what the teacher said, finding the answer in the back of the book in the way the teacher wanted it. If you think outside the box, 
You could be penalized. And so it's not surprising that many kids, even some of our best students, are alienated. Don't feel challenged. Don't feel pushed. Because no one's really pushed them to think. And the thing about deeper learning is that we have great research that when we do it, when we get kids actively engaged in learning, when they are allowed to apply what they learn, it matters a whole lot more. Visiting a school in the Bronx, one of the coldest days of the year, I see kids bundling up at 9 o'clock in the morning to go out. I said, where are you guys going? It's freezing outside. And they explained they were going to collect samples from the Bronx River. Now, those of you from the Bronx, I, I didn't know there was a Bronx River. I knew I'd heard of it, but <laughs> getting to it, I don't know how you get to it. They figured out how to get to it. They were collecting samples to, stu to study what kind of plant life and animal life and pollutants were in the water. And they were collecting and monitoring over time told me they'd spotted two beavers that have returned to the Bronx River, two gay beavers right, that are there now. <laughs> and I said to the science teacher, I said, why are you doing this in a chemistry class? She said, because it's not good enough for them to study chemistry in a textbook. She said, my goal is to have these kids become scientists, not just to pass a chemistry test. So deeper learning is what results in that kind of transformation, the transformation of a student's identity. They want to own it. But access to it is really an equity issue. It's an equity issue because in most of our schools, we don't believe, we only believe that certain kids can do that stuff. The ones we think are advanced the ones we think they are gifted. I try to remind people that too often we confuse being gifted with being privileged. Many of the kids we call gifted, really their only gift is their parents. That's what's their gift. <laughs> parents who had a lot of time on their hands, parents who invested in them. My wife went to a school for the gifted, same school that Lin-Manuel Miranda went to. Hunter. That's you have to test it at age four. Now, those who know about Lin-Manuel, the writer, producer, actor in Hamilton and in the Heights, know that he's from Washington Heights. Guess, what? Guess how many kids from Washington Heights are hunter today? None. None from Harlem, none from the South Bronx, none from East New York. Why not? Are there no more gifted children there? Did they run out? Or is the barrier that we've placed to determine who has those gifts, a wall that keeps certain people out. That's what we see happening in many schools. In many schools where we not only track kids, but we also track teachers. Because it's pretty common, isn't it, to save the best teachers for those kids we think have the most potential. And so inequity and the fact that we dumb down the material for the kids we think are not so smart and don't have the ability leads us to confuse how well a child does on a test with 
how much intellectual ability they actually have. I meet kids that they can navigate dangerous streets, they are managing a household, and they're being treated like they are so dumb they can't even go to the bathroom. Because we don't know what they know. We focus on their deficits and miss out on their strengths. And because we do, instead of education being used to break the cycle of poverty, more often than not, education reinforces it, reproduces it. And that's an indictment, isn't it? It should disturb all of us to know that there are kids out there that with the right stimulation, if they could simply be challenged, we could produce yet another Lin-Manuel or another scientist or another teacher or just a good parent. Just. We don't give our teachers nearly enough guidance on how to do this work, do we? I see them all the time. We have a great teacher education program at UCLA. We have a real commitment to residency-based programs, so we not only send our teachers into high-need schools, we send our faculty there with them. But we produce good novices, not master teachers. And what happens when they get hired to a school? They get assigned the most challenging classroom they can find. I was at one of the schools in South LA recently and see one of our graduates, she's teaching computer science to 36 kids. And she's stressed out. It's not a setup that leads to great success. And so there are real obstacles that get in the way. And one of the biggest obstacles is that a lot of us don't even know what equity is because we confuse it with equality and we assume that simply giving the kids the chance is enough when we know very well that some kids come to school with so many other needs they get in the way of their ability to learn that it is actually unfair to expect them to perform. Hungry kids don't do so well in school, do they? How many of our kids come to school hungry regularly? How many of our kids can't do the homework because they have no place to do the homework? And certainly don't have someone like my brother for his kid who, how many hours a night did you spend on that homework? Four hours a night. <laughs> Four hours a night. Homework is an equity issue. Homework is an equity issue. Anybody with more than one child at home practices equity with your own kids, don't you? Sure you do. I have five. They're all different. So I have to respond to the different needs. When we all eat together, my oldest son is as big as me, bigger. So he gets a lot of food. The third one, vegan. No meat. The last one, she doesn't like food. You have to chase her. The goal is to get everybody to eat, but not to eat the same. Makes sense. In school, our kids are different too. If we don't respond to the different needs, not only the academic, but the social needs, what happens? The kids with the greatest needs are always the kids who do least well. 
And incidentally, they're also the kids we punish the most, too. In many cases, we punish them because of unmet needs. Sounds cruel when I say it like that, doesn't it? But how often do we see administrators, well-meaning, well-intentioned administrators respond to the behavior but never address the cause? Never address the cause. And how many of you have seen kids that will act out because they can't read? They want to be sent to the office. And if there's not a reading specialist waiting for them, what happens? They end up falling further and further behind. So when we embrace equity as a principle, as a goal, it forces us to really start to think about who these kids are. How do we compensate for some of the disadvantages? Recognizing we can't compensate for everything, can we? No, we can't. We can't compensate for a missing parent. Can't compensate for a homeless family and doesn't have a stable place to live. There's huge issues we can't compensate for. But here's what we know about poverty. Poverty is not a learning disability. There is absolutely no evidence that poor kids can't learn. However, when poverty is ignored, when we pretend that the kids who have nothing should be treated the same as the kids who have everything, then we end up perpetuating the inequities. So the question is, how do we begin to compensate? How do we begin to mitigate the effects of poverty? Always staying focused on the outcomes, because if equity is not about outcomes, equity becomes nothing more than what one president called the soft bigotry of low expectations. Ooh, that's a profound statement. Not sure if you knew what it meant, but it was deep, wasn't it? <laughs> but I see it. I see people making excuses. Oh, this kid, oh, pobrecito, he can't, you know, his father's uh, in prison. And this, this, this one, you know, uh, you know, their mother's sick, and we can come up with lots of excuses, but those kids got to learn too. And those kids need to be challenged, too. And that's why deeper learning is an equity issue. And so I want to acknowledge that there are huge obstacles out there, out-of-school factors that limit this and make it harder. It's not surprising that the schools serving the poorest kids are usually the schools failing. Right? Why? Because the kids come with other needs. And basically what we're doing is we're asking teachers to be social workers and psychologists, and to take on roles they're not even trained for. Which means they don't have time to focus on teaching and learning. And so we've got to acknowledge that not only have the poverty and the growth of poverty in this country contributed to the mess we're in, but the policies have too. It's going to be interesting to see how this state resolves this question, huh, about funding. Whole country's watching. I have to give Jerry Brown a lot of credit in California. We finally have a law that says we're going to give more money to schools that have more poverty. Now, it's not equal, but it's getting better because money matters, doesn't it? You say the only people who say money doesn't matter are people with lots of money. But it doesn't mean that money can solve all the problems because there's still a question of how money is invested, how it's used. 
but our policies haven't helped because our policies have done little more than to issue threats and pressure on schools to improve. I see absolutely no evidence that threats and pressure will get schools to be better. You know, there was an idea that started in Los Angeles of putting letter grades on restaurants. And they did that for sanitary purposes. They let you know, if you're going to see a restaurant, you're taking a risk. Right? Well, state of Florida decided that's a great idea. Let's take it and put letter grades on schools. New York City does it. Now it's become a, it's like a lot of states are doing it. They act like they've actually done something by telling you this is a failing school. I go to Edison High School in Miami. It's a triple F school. And it's the principal. How do you get to be triple F? He said, well, you simply fail the FCAT, the state exam, three years in a row. I said, what happens if you fail again? He said, well, we will fail again. Because 85% of these kids don't speak English. Haven't been in the country long enough to pass the test. And the state says if we fail a fourth time, they'll take us over. I said, you worried about being taken over? He said, not at all. I said, why not? He said, because I'm going to quit at the end of the year. <laughs> and you should know everybody I spoke to described him as committed, hardworking, but tired. Tired of being beaten down. He said, you know, the crazy thing is, if the state takes us over, do you think they would know what to do? <laughs> do you think there's some secret recipe they've been holding back on that they will now make available to the kids at Edison? It is a farce. What we call accountability results in those with the most power being the least accountable. Every urban district in New Jersey is under state control, with the exception of Elizabeth. When's the last time you heard Chris Christie say, you know what, my districts aren't doing well? He doesn't take responsibility. And so policies failed us, but the schools are not to be absolved of their part in this either. Because in many of our schools, inequity and practices, inequity in the way we treat kids shows up in everyday life. In fact, it's so pervasive that a lot of times people don't even notice what they're doing, notice how they speak to the children. I can't tell if I'm going to go to school. I hear yelling, yelling at the children where I see kids being required to march in line in silence. I was at John King School. John King, the current Secretary of Education, who ran an excellent charter school in Boston, Roxbury Prep. Higher test scores than most schools in the state. Kids in silence in the hallway, silence in the cafeteria. I said, John, how come silence? I said, I've never been to a private school where kids have to be silent. He said, well, it works for us with these kids. I said, my question to you is, are you preparing these children to become leaders or followers? Because leaders get to talk. He didn't have an answer for that question. But I would say that in many schools, the patterns have been in place for so long after a while, we're not troubled by it. We just used to seeing those kids don't do so well. Those kids are lucky if they just graduate. Good news is there are exceptions. 
Fontana High School, Fontana High School in Southern California, over 4,000 kids, all poor, all Latino, highest AP calculus scores in the county. I asked the principal, how do you get the highest AP calculus scores? He said, we have a great calculus teacher who I convinced to teach two sections of ninth grade math. I met the teacher. I said, what is it like teaching ninth grade math? He says, it's great. He said, until I did, we only had six or seven kids in calculus. He said, I had to build a road to calculus. He's not afraid of ninth grade. And when your best math teacher says, I'll take our ninth grade, you know what that said to the whole math department? He says, we're going to share that responsibility. We're not going to assign it to the newest, least experienced teachers. So equity shows up in what we do. Equity forces us to rethink our assumptions about teaching and learning so that we can, in fact, make deeper learning to a, available to a broader number of kids. It, Force us to throw out those prepackaged curriculum, those teacher-proof curriculum. You know why? Because the teacher-proof curriculum drives away your best teachers. Teachers who see teaching as creative work. And it forces us to move beyond the testable skills to really think about how do we get these kids utilizing those higher order thinking skills. The skills that result in kids coming away better able to take on college and better able to take on life. And so we've got to figure out how do we challenge what has now become a pervasive problem throughout this country of teaching to the test. Now, I don't blame the schools for this. I blame the policymakers for this. But here's the sad thing. ESSA, the new version of NCLB, actually gives states more freedom. So you don't have to test so much. Come up with your own rubrics. You can do performance-based assessment if you want to. I spoke to a group of superintendents across Colorado. I said, what are you going to do with the new freedom under ESSA? You know what they told me? They said, we don't know what to do with the freedom. Because all of us were raised under the old system. And they're handcuffed by these ideas related to accountability. So I think we've got to start to learn from the schools that have been pursuing equity, that have taken off the handcuffs a long time ago, and look at what they're doing. And in each of those places, it starts by recognizing that we've got to go back to what we know about child development. Right? Wow, child development, remember child development? No. About what is developmentally appropriate for children, recognizing that children do things on a spectrum, not at all at the same pace. My first child walked it nine months. I was so proud, as if I had something to do with it. <laughs> the fourth one didn't walk till almost 16 months. I was so worried. Thought she'd crawl forever, but they all walk fine now. They're all over. Even when you don't achieve average yearly progress in walking <laughs> or talking or reading, it doesn't mean the child is damaged. Makes sense. But our policy distorted what is important developmentally for children. We have great research from the neuroscience tells us the brain is like a muscle. 
It's elastic. And it develops through stimulation. It develops by being challenged. And it develops early, and it continues to develop throughout the lifetime. Which is why everyone's got to get challenged. And finally, equity forces us to understand who those kids are. How do they learn when they're not with us? What's going on in their lives? Because over and over again, what I see is that the more we know about the children we teach, the more we'll know about how to teach them. That's what allows us to see beyond the deficits to see strengths. And so what happens when we bring all this together? Well, I know that the common core has become a dirty word, but I actually think common core makes sense. Because they're standards. It's the assessments that are a problem. Right? <laughs> and what do they say? Well, they say things like they've got to develop their skills and apply them to complex texts. They've got to systematically acquire knowledge and literature and other disciplines. But teachers get to choose, which means teachers have to be really informed about what the kids need and what would inspire and engage them. So here's what I see teachers doing. In Baltimore, First grade classroom, teacher brings out a hermit crab. Now, hermit crab is pretty interesting, isn't it? Well, it's got everybody's attention. And the kids are looking at the crab and studying the crab. And then she says, okay, write about the crab. And everybody's writing. And they're drawing pictures. And they got to interview questions for the crab, too, right? Because <laughs> they want to know more about that crab. She could have used a book and a picture. No. She said, I'm going to get a real crab. Why? Because that's what's going to capture their imagination. Right? And if we can capture their imagination and entice them into learning more, maybe they'll even learn when they're not with us. Right? Debate. This is a Bronx debate team. These guys are world famous now. They know how to argue real well. And guess what? To do debate, you have to do research. You have to understand the other side and know the counter-argument. You have to develop your literacy skills because you not only have to be able to speak, you have to have a well-developed argument with references and evidence. You know what they're finding in the schools that have done debate? Literacy scores go way up. Because it attracts kids and entices them into learning. In a, so watching a debate in class about Thomas Jefferson. Question was, is Thomas Jefferson guilty of having sex with a minor? Because Sally Hemings was under 18. That was a lively debate. I wanted to sit in for the whole thing and see how it gets resolved. American history is full of questions that need to be debated, isn't it? And our kids need to develop the ability to think critically about that history and about the world around them. That's what deeper learning offers. And that's why schools like Brockton High School, the largest high school in the state of Massachusetts, with over 4,200 kids, stands out. It stands out not only because it's big, it stands out because of where it is. Brockton, you know what Brockton is known for? Brockton is known for fighting. That's the home of Rocky Marciano home of Marvin Hagler. There's a statue of a boxer out front. They are the boxers. If you Google, you will find out they had a fight at their last graduation. Big brawl. <laughs> but you know what they're known for now? They're known for writing in Brockton. 
Because in 1998, when the state was about to implement their high-stakes exams, a group of veteran teachers came to the principal and said, the only way our kids can pass this exam, the most rigorous exam in the country, is if every teacher becomes a teacher of literacy, regardless of the subject they teach. And Sue Satcher said, good idea, but I can't make the teachers do it. He said, we don't have to make them. He said, we'll work with the willing. He said, but I can't pay you extra. And in a heavily unionized district, the teachers said, we'll work on our own time, because we know this is work. By 2002, over 50% of the kids passed the state exam, which they saw as a victory. They thought 75% would fail. So they said, literacy works. Let's stick with it. By 2006, 80% of the kids passed. Since 2010, over 90% of the kids in Brockton passed the state exam. Over one-third of the senior class gets the highest possible score. That gets them the Adams Scholarship. Any public university in Massachusetts is paid for. And you know what's amazing about Brockton? The demographics of the kids who pass match the demographics of the school. Brockton is a poor city, depressed, known for all kinds of problems, and known for a great high school now, too. Deeper learning is the high-leverage strategy. You know what happens if you get into a fight in Brockton now? First thing you got to do is write about it. <laughs> That's a writing opportunity, too. And so when we look closely at the schools that are doing this work, we realize they're doing things differently. They're focusing on different things. And that's true in math, too. And in math, yes, math also calls on, on kids to develop the ability to apply demanding math concepts and procedures. It calls them to develop mathematical ways of thinking and address real-world challenges, develop problem-solving skills, collaboration, communication. It's all interwoven in the standards. A lot of people are afraid of the Common Core. They say, oh, no, our kids can't do that. Well, guess what? They're doing it in Hollenbeck Middle School, East LA. All of these are English language learners. It's an eighth grade math class, 90 minutes long, algebra. Kids up out of their seats. Teacher's so good, she can stand in the back and talk to me. Because she doesn't have to hover. If she wanted to, she could start doing yoga. Because <laughs> the kids are in control of learning, which means they're not just learning math. They are learning how to work together. They are learning how to problem solve. They're learning how to respect differences. And every kid is on task, including that one with the khakis, who's my son, who was with City Year at the time, tutor in the class, working with those kids. I said to Antonio, this is a great teacher. He said, oh, but she's not the best one. I said, who's the best one? He said, it's this other teacher. The kids told me about him. And he takes me to see we together, and this teacher, it's like the Tonight Show going on in his class, because he uses music to keep the kids engaged, and kids are cutting other classes to be in his class. The kids will tell you where they're challenged, if we have the courage to ask. And the reason why it takes courage is because they'll also tell you where they're not being challenged. And then the question is, what do we do about that? You know what this is? This is the highest form of classroom management, right here. Because the kids are totally engaged. They were so engaged that when the bell rang, they were disturbed. Because they were immersed. 
And a lot of people look at this, a new teacher looks at that and says, wow, that's a frightening picture, isn't it? All it would take is one fart, that whole room would just disrupt. <laughs> but she's not worried about that. She can handle it. Because she is the facilitator of learning. And if you could do that in East LA, I bet you could do that anywhere in Seattle or beyond. But is it happening? And do we show teachers that it can happen, that they can do that? Because if the teachers never see it, they just believe not these kids. Oh no, we got to put them back in the cemetery. You know the cemetery method? Line them up in rows, keep them as still as possible. <laughs> Deadly, isn't it? Especially in middle school. What is, I, I learned this in middle school a long time ago. The key to middle school is what? You got to make learning fun. Because what happens if you don't make it fun? They're going to make it fun anyway at your expense. That's what they're going to do. They'll find a way to make it fun. She's made math fun. And so when we learn from examples like these, like this school in Philadelphia where kids are doing computer science in South Philly, what you start to see is, guess what? That, that deeper learning, that these high standards are in fact an equity issue, are in fact the key to changing outcomes for kids. Right now, across the country, 30% of the kids who graduate from high school, who pass the state exams, have to take remedial courses when they go to colleges. And the kids in remedial courses, very few of them ever get out. Because they're basically repeating high school and not getting any credit for it. Because they haven't acquired skills like these. Because they haven't had the opportunity to learn. And we're seeing schools, even schools with kids with learning disabilities and kids who are English language learners because the standards calls for them to be challenged too. And a lot of schools struggle with this, especially because we give so little support to these teachers. But when we see it all come together, when we find schools like this one in the South Bronx, the Bronx Academy of Language and Technology, this is a school that serves students with interrupted formal education. That means they weren't attending school regularly in their own country. Most of them are not literate in their native language when they come. Those are the kids that typically drop out at the highest rates. Because it takes at least six years to master academic English. 95% of these kids graduated from high school and passed the state exam in English. I asked the kids, why does a school like this work? What makes it work? They said, because it's like a family. We support each other. We take care of each other. It wasn't like that at the other schools where we get bullied. I sat in with teachers to ask them what it's like to work as teachers were planning their lessons together. Every day, every lesson is planned collectively. No lesson is given in a class unless it's been vetted by a senior teacher. And I asked, I said, do you do this every day? They said, oh yeah, every day. And a new teacher turned to me and says, don't all teachers do this? He said, because I wouldn't know what I was doing if they just put me in the classroom by myself. I'm inexperienced. And I said, yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? That's exactly what we do in many schools. And then we blame the teacher and blame the kids because we set them up. So if we're going to do this work differently, we're going to have to 
Focus on the places where it's being done now. Learn from what it looks like. And all those schools are places that are focusing on engagement. And they understand that engagement is multidimensional. Part of it is behavioral, so you can see that part. Do they show up? Are they on task? But a lot of it is also cognitive. Do they understand what they're doing? Can they explain it? What does the work look like? And it's also emotional. Do they care? Are they invested? Does it matter to them? And when all those things come together, results improve. They improve because the kids take ownership of learning. And you know, the thing is that as a teacher myself, I always know this. It's a lot easier to teach kids who are willing learners, isn't it? Than to force feed kids. What are we doing to get kids to become avid readers? So they'll read on their own time. What are we doing to get kids to understand the power of knowledge in their life to solve problems? Part of what we've got to do is get teachers much more focused on evidence. And by evidence, I don't mean the standardized test scores. I mean the work they produce every day. What does that work look like? What does it tell us? Because as we get them focused on evidence, it gets teachers modeling for kids. This is what we expect. I do that for my grad students now. I tell them, I, I put samples of high-quality papers that go look. You've never done a literature review, I'll put up one on the file for you to look at. They appreciate that. Our kids appreciate it too. And when teachers are checking for understanding and understanding the interests of kids so they can make links between the curriculum and the lives of the kids, it becomes a lot easier to teach them. If you're ready for it, those of you who are teaching right now, do what they're doing, that poet mentor's doing in Del Paso Heights. Tell the kids every assignment is a first draft. You don't do your best work. I don't do my best work on the first draft. The real learning is not in the first draft, it's in the revision. And the real teaching is not in the grading, it's in the feedback. If we want our kids to produce better work, if we want our kids to develop a sense of persistence and grit, it's amazing to me that Angela Duckworth would get a MacArthur Genius Award for saying working hard is helpful. That's <laughs> genius award for that? Okay. But all the grit in the world without opportunities and access doesn't change outcomes. And so we've got to change the way we work. We've got to change the way we practice. We've got to change the way teachers work because so many teachers are working in isolation from each other. And teaching is a craft that you can't do well in isolation. We do so much better when we have a chance to learn together, work together, observe each other. And in so many schools, that's not happening. So I do want to say that while it is hard to change what we're doing, it's certainly not impossible. Not if we start to rethink our assumptions about school and what matters and what really makes a difference in the lives of kids. And not if we start to look at the schools where we see better results coming out, especially in the places where you wouldn't expect it. 
It's one thing to see it in a high affluent school. It's another thing to see it in places like Rainy Beach. If we could produce basketball players, if we produce a lot of basketball players out of Rainy Beach, guess what? We could produce engineers too if we had the commitment. And so we have to be clear on what the priorities are when we work with teachers and when working with schools. You know, the alternative to applying pressure on teachers and threats on schools is building capacity. That's what they did in Brockton. They built capacity. And capacity building work takes time, doesn't it? Because you don't change and become a master teacher from one session on professional development. They've been on that journey now 19 years. But if you want to go to the highest performing urban school district in, the, in North America, you will find capacity building at work there. That's Toronto. If you read about how they've done it, read Michael Fullen's work about the drivers they've used to produce better outcomes, what you'll see is that if a school is having trouble, the Ministry of Education sends people in and says, how can we help? What do we need to do differently? Maybe you need a social worker here. Maybe you need, looking on these math scores, maybe you need someone who knows math to help your math teacher. And I often point out to people that Toronto made its improvement part of the time while they had a crack-smoking mayor. <laughs> Imagine if they had a sober mayor, what they could have done in Toronto. So it does take a different vision to do this work. And the vision may not come from Washington, probably won't. <laughs> well, okay, maybe Washington State, not Washington, D.C., thank you. <laughs> but we can't wait until we get the leadership in Washington. Our kids' time is right now. And so my challenge to you here in Seattle and Washington State is what do you do? Do you love your kids as much as you love those Seahawks? Because <laughs> if we did, if we did, we would make it a much greater priority than it is right now to ensure that all kids get that opportunity to learn. And so I encourage you, whether you're a teacher or a principal or an academic or simply a person who's concerned about the future, and we should all be concerned about our future, because the future of this country will be determined to a large degree by what happens in its schools. We have a lot at stake. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, we'd like to open it up to Q&A now. And um, I know we probably have a lot of educators in the house, so I need to tell everybody to keep your questions to questions and not statements or other. <laughs> My parents are both public school teachers or, or retired public school teachers, so I get it. But uh, try to keep it short so we have a little bit of time. And uh, we'll try to take as many questions as we can within that. A lot of time, the quicker you are, the more we can take. So we'll start right here. Go ahead. Hi, thank you so much for being here again. Thank you. <laughs> and um, I'm training to be a principal. I'm also a graduate student here at the UW. And something that I'm curious about is, 
In all this, something I think about a lot is um, how more white teachers um, teach more students of color. And while I understand the importance of cultural competence with the lens from the teacher on the kids, um, what does the role of the racial subjectivity of the teacher in understanding these things um, play, in your opinion, in improving all this? Thank mm. you. Big, complex question. <laughs> yeah, but it's short. <laughs> <laughs> well, teaching is um, an act of communication. It's based on a relationship between a student and child. We live in a highly segregated society. We're putting teachers into, into situations that, for many of them, is outside of their experience, not something they choose, uh, which means that for many of them, uh, building those relationships doesn't come naturally. Right? Uh, what we know that's also true is kids will learn from anyone they know cares about. Kids are a lot less hung up about race than teachers are, than adults are. And so the real issue is how do we get our teachers to first of all understand their own biases that they bring with them, that they've learned over their lifetime, but not simply to unlearn them, but to figure out how do I do some of the stuff I've described in the classroom so I can be a real resource for these kids. You know, one of the things that's troubled me as we've tried to take this work on is we, we pretend that you can simply erase bias through a workshop but we don't give people the tools in the classroom for how to make that classroom come to life. If you don't do that part of the work, all the anti-racism workshops in the world won't change a thing. And I think we focus too much on the beliefs, which are much harder to change, and not enough on the day-to-day -day practice, which I think is much easier to change. So. Thanks for the thoughtful question over here. Hi. Uh, sorry, I'm short, so I'm just going to... Make sure this is good. Okay, so I have a question about how to encourage kids with learning disabilities when they have like failing test scores and how to like want to actually pursue higher education when they see test scores that are not to the same standards as like students that aren't struggling as much in those those ways. So you know, this is uh, another big complex question because. Kids with learning disabilities have a variety of disabilities, right? A variety of differences in the way they learn. And so what might work for one may not work for another. They also have something we call an IEP, right? <laughs> Which if it were actually valid and, and there was some fidelity to how it was implemented should help, right? Uh, in fact, if, if IEPs actually work, we would all want our kids to have one, wouldn't we? Wouldn't you want someone who actually knew exactly what your child needed and gave it to them? Uh, problem is in a lot of schools, the teachers who are assigned are not actually trained. Uh, the, there is no fidelity to that IEP. And over time, the kids internalize the labels. Right? Uh, I was at a school in Brooklyn where a teacher was trying to get a boy to read a book, and he yells at her. He says, Don't you, haven't you seen my IEP? I can't read that book. He knew about an IEP, though but he had totally internalized the idea that he couldn't do it because he'd learned helplessness in school. And so a lot of what we have to do to make special ed special is to reclaim the confidence of kids. And many of them have that confidence beaten down from their time in school. And you know, it's a natural thing for anybody. If you fail at something, after a while, you don't want to do it anymore. You know? 
Uh, and so part of what we have to do is to reconnect, build up their confidence and their competence again so they'd be willing to try things that don't come easy. Um, that's not easy to do, but there are teachers and there are schools that do it. I always say that the, the way I know that a special ed program is, is effective at a school is you can't tell who's in it. And the kids can't either. Uh, and the teachers who are special ed teachers work seamlessly with the other teachers to plan together to meet the needs of the kids. But there aren't many schools, not enough schools that do it in that way. Thank you. Uh, one more question. Thanks. Um, I know Brockton. Oh, oh go I'm ahead. so sorry. Go this ahead. is my fault. I will, uh, let's, well, two more questions, so I'll, I'll get to you next. Thank you, sir. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, I had it. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I know Brockton was unusual, but how would you, what would you recommend in terms of instituting change in, in an entrenched traditional system? It's hard. It's hard. I go to a lot of entrenched traditional systems. <laughs> and and, and the, what's hard is that those systems influence beliefs and expectations and assumptions. And so that's part of what we have to shake up. Part of the reason why I spend so much time describing places where we're getting better results is that does shake people up, especially when they actually go visit the schools. I was working in uh, Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Right. They lost last night to poor, to poor Tide, right? <laughs> I was there. And now again, a college town, you might think, good schools, not if you're black. Right. And I was at a high school in Tuscaloosa, you know, performance of African-American students, horrible. Teachers, you know, the, the typical narrative, kids don't care, the parents don't care. And I said, so I asked them, I said, have you ever been to a school where African-American kids are excelling? I said, no. So I arranged for a group of them to come visit me in New York. And I took them to Medgar Evers High School. And they saw African-American kids who are knocking it out the park. And they were blown away because they'd never seen that before. And they spent a lot of time talking to the kids about what made school and learning so meaningful to them. And they, were, they came back with a sense of dissonance because they realized the problem wasn't the kids was them. But that started a process of reflecting on the practice, reflecting on the structures and the systems they created. Again, it's not like it, suddenly they're going to become a better school. But at first, you, but if you don't change the narrative about why you are where you are, nothing will change. And I can't tell you how often I go to school where they're blaming kids and parents and nothing's changing. Mariama, thanks. I remember now. Um, any words of wisdom for a, uh, a person of color who teaches people of color? Um, because I feel like sometimes, uh, I, I'm, an, I'm an undergrad, but I go back into high schools and, and I do some, some help every now and then, but um, I feel like oftentimes my students look at me as a cop-out because I'm in college, I'm in high school, I'm, or I'm not in high school, I'm in college. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, they just see me as another part of the system. So trying to like, find them and find ways to like connect with them or just any words of wisdom along that lines. So what I, I find, um, because I also talk to kids a lot too in schools and I'm older than you so they really think I'm from another planet, right? So, but what I find to be most um, influential is telling them your story, right? How you got to be where you are. Because part of what you want to do is to make it, 
less um, uh, distant from their experience. You know, they, for many of them, you know, one of the things that poverty does to a person, in many cases, is it limits your sense of the possible. Right? It's psych you know, poverty is not simply an economic condition. For many people, it's also a psychological condition of learned helplessness over time. And so part of what you want to do is to, to demonstrate what you've been able to do through your journey to college, why you do it, why it matters to you. And I, you know, your example, I think, can, over time, inspire people, especially if they are there often. You know, it takes more than a single visit right, to, to change a mindset that's been developed over many years. So I'd encourage you to keep going. Uh, bring someone with you <laughs> to come and visit the campus so they can see what it's like and, and, and so that it becomes something that's less foreign uh, to their reality. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can we have one more round of applause for Dr. Tejma Nogueira? Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle, featuring a talk by Professor Pedro Noguera. He spoke at UW's Kane Hall on January 10th. Tune in again soon.